The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. This is a podcast for Christians who want to do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Every week, I host a conversation with a Christian who's pursuing world-class mastery of their craft. We talk about their path to mastery, their daily habits, and how their faith influences the work they do in the world Today's guest I could not be more excited about. Cal Newport has been in my list of top five, maybe top three authors for years. He's the author of mammoth bestsellers like Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, So Good They Can't Ignore You, and his newest, A World Without Email. Cal's also a computer science professor at Georgetown University. So Cal and I recently sat down. We talked about how we can escape the tyranny of our email inboxes, how his career as a writer started out with a college dare, and why he hears from pastors more than almost anybody else about deep work and digital minimalism. You're going to love this thought-provoking conversation with my new friend, Cal Newport. Cal, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we were just riffing before we start recording on video podcasts and audio. I was like, let's save for the conversation because my audience doesn't know this. We don't do video when we're recording the call to mastery because here's my philosophy. Tell me what you think about this. I want to do what the audience does, right? Like when you video, you kind of have an unfair advantage over the audience. Have you found that? recording podcasts well, that's true you, you get to see the face you get to see what's going on i mean i'm surprised by the degree to which people for example are interested in watching <laughs> the video talk. podcast recordings <laughs> but i think it goes to something human our brain loves the whole i guess we're tempted by the whole information stream yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to see facial movements we want to see whatever so you're right if we're seeing each other but the audience is not seeing us then we're working on a different information stream. Yeah. Totally. So that's the only reason why we do it. That's my philosophy and I'm sticking to it. Hey, so I love reading acknowledgments of books as an author because I always find like some interesting tidbit. And when I was reading the acknowledgments for your new book, A World Without Email, I read that you signed your first book deal with Random House when you were 21. What? What's the story behind this? Yeah, I've been at this a while. <laughs> <laughs> we won't say how long. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's my seventh book. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, so my first book was a, it was an advice guide for students. And I wrote it as a student. And, you know, I wanted to write a book. I looked into it. And it's hard to get a book deal if you're 21 years old. So I, I, I basically, <laughs> I talked to a family friend who was an agent and was basically asking, what would it take? And, you know, show me the lane. And the lane's pretty narrow. And the lane involved, it better be something that has the fact that you're young makes sense 
first totally. of all, right? Like you can't say I'm going to write a biography of FDR <laughs> you know, when you're <laughs> 21 and you better have been writing a lot too, right? You, you better have chops and it better be something that makes sense for you to write. And yeah. actually probably if you can do a lot of the work up front, not writing it, but a lot of the research up front, because they, you need to convince them that the ideas you're going to write about are full-fledged and aren't going to be amateur. Yeah. So I did that. And then that's how I got the book deal. You were in college at the time. Yeah. <laughs> right after my junior year. So I signed with my agent, who's still my agent to this day. I signed with her. I was 20 years old right before my birthday in the spring of that year. And then that summer, we sold the book. That's amazing. What was it? Did you just want to write a book? You were just like, I want to publish something. I'm not sure what the idea is. It sounds like that was your story. What was that desire in you to want to publish? Were you just a big book nerd? Like, what was that? I mean, I was a big book nerd. I also was an entrepreneur. So yeah. I had run a company in high school and I was used to advice guides, for example, because I ran a business. If you're in business, you read a lot of advice books, right? Because yeah, yeah. you need to know, like, how do I do this? How do I do that? So I was used to that. And I had this idea that student advice guides should be written more like business advice guides because I was mm -hmm. a business advice guide guy going to school, taking on loans and said, okay, how do I do this? Well, and I go to the bookstore and the books about student life were light, put it that yeah. way. Yeah, right? yeah. There was this sense of don't be too serious. You'll scare off the kids. It, it, they didn't understand the market, right? I mean, mm -hmm. college kids take themselves too seriously. Yeah, yeah. Right? So this idea that, oh, you got to be kooky and cool. <laughs> yeah, like they had some mindset of like 1970s high school kids or something. Right, like right, 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 I was like, right, look, right, right. look, the culture's changed. So I Things had, have I was, changed since the breakfast club. Yeah. Right. And then I was a writer in college. I wrote for the student newspaper. I was a columnist. I wrote for the humor magazine. I ended up the editor-in-chief of the humor magazine. So I was a writer, like had some basic chops on how to write. And I was doing a, I did a semester in New York City and I was hanging out with some entrepreneur friends and I was mentioning this idea, but these were entrepreneur friends that were, you know, that flipped a couple of companies. They had taken on a bunch of investment. And so their mindset was like, well, just go do it. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, do it. Of course. Like, what's the big deal? You have an idea, write the book. So they basically dared me. So this was the winter of my junior year. And I took the dare to heart because <laughs> I signed with the agent that spring. You know, so this one friend of mine in particular, I remember it was at the Russian Sam Zavar in New York, where you would get homemade flavored vodkas. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't even 21 yet, but I think I had a good fake. And he was just like, well, just write the book. You know, what's the big deal? Is it really that hard? And so that nudge is what, okay, I'll figure out yeah. how to do it. And I did. No, but it helped. I had an idea. I knew what I yeah, wanted yeah. to do and I knew how to write. So that that helped. It's that why not me quality that I talk a lot about with entrepreneurs. Just like, yeah, like you want to write a book? Like, why can't you, you know, pull it off? Just go do it. Yeah. And this so, was the culture at this time. This was the early 2000s. We yeah. had just had this dot-com boom where young people got way too much credit. So right. just to, just to lay that out, this, I had a business as a 17 year old because they're like, I don't know, you're young. You should know about computers. Like we, right, right. we gave way too much credit. So we were all very overconfident back yeah, then, yeah, but yeah. that worked to my advantage. Yeah, totally. So one of the books I recommend most frequently to students to this day, it may be my favorite of yours. I don't know. It's so good. They can't ignore you. In fact, the passion mindset versus craftsman mindset was really the core of one of the chapters of my previous book, Master of One. I'm curious, can you break down those two different mindsets for us, the passion and the craftsman mindsets? So the passion mindset, which is a mindset that really grew during my generation, right? So I'm 38. I was a child of the 80s and the 90s. And this is yeah, when this too. idea... Yeah, there we go. So you recognize this as well. We totally. were taught to follow our passion. Which do what you think, love. Do what makes you happy. Yeah. And we think of this as a timeless thing. But I, in that book, I track the etymology. No, it, it arises in the 1990s. 
right? That, I mean, that phrase, follow your passion in this context, it rose when we were, you know, in elementary school. So this idea arose and it led to what I call the passion mindset for understanding your career, which said, I need to keep asking, what is it that I want to do? And if I haven't found that match, I'm not going to be happy. So I need to keep asking, like, what does this job offer me? Is this really my true passion? And I'm going to answer that question in part by just interrogating how I feel day to day. Do I have this sense of passion? If I don't, then it must be the wrong job. I need to then switch to another job. I got to find the job that offers me this sense of passion. Instantly. Instantly. Yeah. It's a matching problem. It was the logical conclusion of the advice to follow your passion is that you have this thing called the pre-existing passion and is the matching of that to your work that then generates career satisfaction. The craftsman mindset, which of course is much older, is don't ask what your job is offering you, ask what you are offering your job. Am I useful? Am I good? Am I getting better? Am I contributing to this team, to this organization? Am I getting better at what I'm offering? Like, what is my craft? How valuable am I? How can I be more valuable? Uh, that's the craftsman mindset. So it has very little to do with what does this job offer me or is this the right job for me? More about how good am I? How can I get better? Yeah. And like the big takeaway for me, and I wrote a little bit about this in my book, Master of One, is like passion is a side effect of mastery, right? You get to love what you do by getting really good at it. We're talking to an audience of Christians who this shouldn't come as a huge surprise to. Like we are modeling our lives after Jesus who came to serve, not to be served, right? The passion mindset is all about like, what value does a job offer me? And I would argue the craftsman mindset is like, no, how can I serve others really well? Yeah, I would say some of the most more interesting conversations I had about this concept. So I, I wrote this book when I was at MIT and it was with various Catholic lay communities. Hmm. There, for example, MIT had a house that I think was, I think it was Opus Dei. And I remember like having lunch with the sort of Catholic lay leader of this house. I, I don't know quite exactly how the Catholic positions work or this or that, but I remember coming away thinking, my God, they have a very sophisticated understanding of calling. Yeah. <laughs> this is not, yeah. and just by contrast, how we simplified this for you and me when we were kids, what we're hearing from our teachers, it's almost insulting. The yeah. degree to which we took this nuanced concept of a calling and corrupted it to when you were born, you have a gene that says you're meant to be a social media marketer. <laughs> and if you express that gene by being a social media marketer, it will produce good feelings. <laughs> and if not, right. you need to, you need to change to that job. And then you go and you look at the classic Christian notion of calling and it's complete. Well, first of all, it has a huge component of service and sacrifice to it, yeah. which is completely anathema to the, the passion mindset of, I want to feel positive physical affect, which I get by matching my job. So anyways, Christian thought was, and there's some interesting Jewish thought on this as well. I think there's interesting Islamic thought on this as well. I just haven't been able to interrogate it as much. But let's just say Judeo-Christian thought on this topic is incredibly rich. And it was influential to me that when I was working on the book and then after the book to help understand the ideas of, oh, these are things that have been really well thought through. So I'm at a Jesuit university. Jesuits have a lot of interesting thoughts on this as well. You know, all these orders do. So anyways, I'm with you that religious people have a sophisticated notion of calling. And this thing we came up with in the 90s, and I have some ideas of where it came from, simplified it to the point that it caused more harm than good. That's, yeah. that's basically what I think. Happened. It's bad advice. It's just terrible advice, right? Yeah, it leads to discontent in you because you're constantly switching to find that instantaneous satisfaction. 
and you can't stick with something long enough to get great at it to serve other people well and find sustainable vocational joy for yourself. So speaking of which, you have this rich idea of calling. And this is a lot about what this podcast is about. If you have this rich construct of calling, it leads you to be incredibly ambitious for your work, not for success. We don't talk about success on this podcast, but as a means of serving other people more effectively. And I would argue deep work, which I mention every other episode of this show, right, is one of the keys to doing that really well in the 21st century. But just in case somebody missed me talking about deep work in an episode, break it down for us. What is deep work and why is it so critical to the pursuit of mastering our calling, our craft? I mean, deep work is when you're giving something unbroken concentration. Right? Here's a cognitively demanding thing, and I'm doing just this thing. I'm not doing this thing while also checking this. I'm not doing this thing while also scrolling this. I'm just doing this hard cognitive thing. My main argument is in almost every endeavor, that's what moves the needle. Now, there's other things that matter. I call it shallow work. I mean, you need to answer the email from your accountant because they need to know the answer to should I move this money? And, you know, you need to do payroll. And there's stuff that's important, but it doesn't move the needle. It doesn't make you better at what you do. It doesn't make your company more successful. It doesn't get you promoted. It's the, if you're in a non-manual field where your brain is your primary tool, it is the unbroken concentrated thought that is your number one activity that's going to move you ahead. And so the mindset I preach in that book is that should be a priority, right? I mean, it's like you're the athlete, you're prioritizing your training. And then you want to make sure, of course, I have a, you know, I put aside time because I have to deal with my agent and my accountant and my endorsement deal and this and that. But of course, my training is going to be at the center of what I do, because if I don't train, I'm not going to perform and it'll all go away. And in knowledge work, we forgot that. And we let the shallow stuff basically just take over the whole day. Yeah. And then we sort of worshiped at the altar of busyness as opposed to actually honing craft and applying craft. So there's a plea for, I know all this stuff is exciting, especially with digital tools and Slack and email and social media. And there's all these things you can be doing. And it's all very exciting. But just remember None of that moves the needle. None of that's going to make you better. None of that's going to make your company more successful. None of that's going to get you promoted. That is almost always going to be the long, contemplative, undistracted, deep efforts. Yeah. And you started working, I didn't realize this, you started working on a world without email right after deep work. I'm assuming that's because email is enemy number one in our fight for depth. Is that right? Is that why you started working on that manuscript next? Yeah, because in deep work, I just said, let's just stipulate that it's things like email right, 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 that are making this hard. And let me get into my argument for like the value of focus. And really the feedback from that was, don't be so haste, don't be so flippant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't understand the degree to which we can't escape yeah. having to be in this email inbox. And I thought, well, that's great. Like what's going on here? What an interesting question. It was hundreds of millions of people around the world had work experiences where they're just constantly tending these chattering inboxes. And it's like, okay, so what's going on here? Why do we work that way? Is it a good idea? And if not, you know, what should we do instead? It was an epic question. It took me five years to untangle. So I stopped in the middle of working on that book to write Digital Minimalism, which is the book that came out two years ago. Yeah. And that's about our life outside of work. It's about our smartphones, social yeah. media and YouTube and the stuff we do outside of work and distracted on our phones. And I stopped to write that book because it was incredibly timely. There was this shift that happened right around late 2016, early 2017, where people went from exuberant to uneasy about their smartphones. Like this is happening fast. All right, I got to write about that. So I wrote mm -hmm. that book and then I turned back and kept working on the email book because the idea is no one was asking these questions about email. So I had no fear that I was going to be scooped, right? I had no fear like, well, there's three other books that are going to come out. Everyone right, right. had just accepted 
Yeah, we just we checked the status quo. It's just always going to be this way. Yeah, this is just what work is, and no one was questioning it. So, paradoxically, that gave me confidence to take my time. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I was the only one on that beat. I like that. So the title's terrific, right? A world without email, but you make it really clear early on in the book that this is about more than email. It's about what you call the hyperactive hive mind. Define that for us real quick before we move on. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I actually don't care about email, the tool. The, the whole story is email spread in the 90s because it was better than fax machines and voicemail. In its wake came this new way of collaborating that I call the hyperactive hive mind, where we said, oh, now that we have low friction digital communication, hmm. we can just do all of our collaboration with back and forth unscheduled messaging. You know, just like, Jordan, did you grab this? What about this? You want to jump on a call? No, that doesn't work. What about this time? Hey, I, we just got this question from a client. What do you think? Should we do a meeting? We began collaborating and coordinating with these unscheduled back and forth messages. I call that approach to collaboration, the hyperactive hive mind. Email enabled it, but it's not synonymous. Now, you can't do the hive mind without email, right? Unless you're just two people in the same room. You don't necessarily have to do the hive mind just because you have email, right? So it's important to separate those two things. So the real title of this book should be, as you pointed out, a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow is the dominant way that we collaborate. (laughs) Terrible book title. My publisher did not allow that one. So, but, 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 you know, I, I'll hear it when people hear the title. They're like, oh, so what tool should we use instead? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, I'm right, like, right. oh, no, no, no. This is no, so much deeper than that. It's right, so much right. deeper. Yeah. Yeah. You did a masterful job of like spelling out the case in the book. And you got like really practical, right? You offered a bunch of strategies for how we could work smarter and kind of escape the madness of the hive mind. I am curious, like which strategy has been most influential, impactful for you personally in your work? You know, it's the mindset. So the mindset that I've inculcated in my own mind, and I'm trying to push in other people's minds is that the productivity poison is context shifting. Yeah. So if you have to keep changing your attention from what you're doing to an inbox or a Slack channel or Microsoft Teams channel, and then back to what you're doing, every time you do that change, you pay a cognitive cost, especially if you just glance for a few minutes and then come back to what you're doing because you initiate a context shift and then abort it halfway through. It creates cognitive confusion. You can't think clearly. You get mentally exhausted and it creates anxiety. So context switching is poison. What creates context switching? Well, if I am organizing things with unscheduled messaging, I'll just shoot you something. At some point, you will shoot me something back. and I need to kind of respond to that relatively quickly because we have a little ping pong match going on here. That's going to force context shifting because I have to keep checking the inbox to see if you've written back. Once you understand all of that, then the whole game becomes how do I do the coordination and collaboration I need to do to do my work well with a minimum of those unscheduled messages? And that mindset shift changes everything. It's a completely different way of looking at it. I mean, everyone thinks about email overload from the perspective of, oh, I need better habits for how I deal with my inbox. No, no, no. You need to stop stuff from coming in that inbox in the first place. Yeah. You don't need batching rules or etiquette or norm or here is my, you know, I turn off my notifications. It's not about your interaction with an overstuffed inbox. It's getting that inbox to be less overstuffed. And the only way to do that is to start asking, can I put in place other rules or systems or processes for all these things I do on a regular basis that allows us to get our work done without unscheduled messaging? And I think that mindset shift where you begin to think about unscheduled messaging like a dirty word opens up everything. Yeah, And then it's just a matter of like, oh, there's a hundred different ways we can do this. All sorts of tools, all sorts of best practices, all sorts of insights. And as you said, I give a lot of principles in the book. They're just basically ideas for once you know that's what you're doing, let's get into some ideas about how you can do it. But that fundamental 
mindset shift. Unscheduled messaging is a four-letter word. Let's replace the hyperactive hive mind with ways of doing the things we do every day and every week that doesn't require that. Yeah, and you're the perfect person to write about this, right? You're a CS professor, computer science professor, right? Like it is about systems and protocols and systematizing this communication, right? I also like this thread that you pulled in the book, the specialization principle. And it's very much in line with the message of the book I referenced a few minutes ago, Master of One. Can you break down the specialization principle in a little bit more detail and how it can help us do more deep work? Yeah, it's smart that you pointed that out because it, there's a deeper thing going on here. Totally. And yeah. it, it's I relevant. wish you would have went there in the book. I was like, go there, go there. Well, it might be another book, right? <laughs> you can kind of tell in that chapter, it's relevant to this practical goal of how do we reduce unscheduled messages? But there's also something so much deeper there. And you, you get into this in Master of One for sure. So the idea with the specialization principle is in modern knowledge work, for the most part, we do too much. And what I mean is we put too much on people's plates that like the amount of things that you are responsible on your plate is probably too much. And by too much, I mean, if we want to optimally, let's be computer science for a second. If you want to optimally allocate tasks to human brains to get things done at a high level, we're putting too much stuff in these buffers. Now, I partially blame email for this, I mean, I document in the book how when you remove the friction involved in handing something off to someone, you make it easy in terms of time, but also in terms of social capital. Let's not undervalue the social capital cost of having to look someone in the eye Yes, and say, I want you to spend time on this thing. When you wrote that, I was like, this is actually a really good test, right? Because the case you make, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but <laughs> the case you make is like, would you go into the person's office, look them in the eye and ask them to do the thing that you're asking them to do via email, right? And a lot of times, like probably no, but because it's so lightweight, that's the problem, right? The medium is the problem. I mean, that's one of my favorite stories I uncovered in the book was from that research study where they took people and took them off email for a week. And it was the guy who was saying every day or every week, I forgot what it was, I have to set up this lab because we're research company and it takes me hours. And my boss just hammers me with emails, with questions and tasks. It's all urgent and he needs it right away. It makes it impossible. And then this individual is, takes part in an experiment where they say, okay, for this week, no email. And all the questions stop coming from his boss. And the crazy thing about it is that his boss was two doors down right. from where he was sitting <laughs> up his lap. So the friction was, I have to walk down and poke my head into the door and say, you know, hey, Jordan, can you, what's the answer here? Can you do this for me real quick? That little bit of friction, it all went away, yeah. you know? And I think we see it during remote work in the pandemic, right? With why are there so many more Zoom meetings? Then we didn't used to have that many meetings when we were in the office. There's a social capital cost hmm. to setting up a meeting. If I then have to sit in a room, like we all came to this room and we all sat down and we all look at me and like, I brought you all here. You had to physically expend energy and come here. There's a capital cost. We think twice. Maybe I'll just poke my head in your office and ask you the question, right? But Zoom... No, I just type it and this Google calendar invite shows up, you know, and then I don't have to worry about this thing because I always go to meetings if they're on my calendar. So if I set up a meeting, then it's off my plate for now and I don't have to worry about it. Next thing you know, it's seven or eight Zoom meetings a day. Yeah. So the social capital matters. I mean, I talk about in the book from a nerd perspective, engineers are very familiar with this fact that if you have a system and you go from some friction to no friction, crazy stuff happens, right? It's <laughs> right, like right. feedback loops with a PA system, you know, turning into a squeal. If you don't have enough friction in gears, it, they spin out of control. Like you need some friction. Email got rid of friction. And so I think we're doing too much and for no good reason, right? I mean, yeah. for no good reason, just because it's possible and human social dynamics and this weirdness of social capital, 
And no one's ever stepping back and saying, well, let me say there are some exceptions to this. I'll say that in a minute. But for the most part, we're not stepping back and saying, well, how much is on your plate right now? Like how many things are you responsible for? Is that too many? And the one group that does care about this is software developers. They're much more structured in how they organize and assign their work. And once they got very intentional about answering these questions, they got incredibly minimalist. If you use a system like Kanban to organize your software development team, they have a thing called the works in progress limit. They're like, okay, how many things we want one individual to have to worry about at a time? And the answer turned out to be one or two is optimal. Yeah. Yeah. Do this. And then we'll talk about what comes next. It's the opposite of what we do in almost all other work, which is like, uh, it's obligation, hot potato. This thing's on my plate, stresses me out. If I shoot off an email to you, it's off my plate. And I know it's going to come back because I sent you a very vague email that doesn't explain anything and it's not at all clear what I meant. But you know what? In the moment, it's off my plate. I don't have to worry about it. Now, of course, it bounces back 20 minutes later. And so then you shoot it over to someone else and you say thoughts, question mark. And it's not the right way to utilize human brains. You said in the book, quote, the optimal way to deploy our human brains is sequentially, end quote. And, you know, I've known for years that's certainly true within the context of a day, right? This is the essence of deep work, one important thing at a time. But over the last few years, I've been finding that it's also true in a broader sense of sequencing my goals, my major projects, my key results that I'm tackling within a given quarter, right? So as much as I can now, I focus on one big new thing at a time until it's done rather than working on three new projects in tandem, right? Do you do something similar? Yes, or I try and I should. And I should because I think you're on to something there. This is not in this book, but it's something I'm thinking about now as a new topic is understanding, I don't know the right way to explain this, but we have an instinct towards action, just like we have an instinct about hunger, right? Like boredom feels really bad. Hmm. Being hungry feels really bad. So the hunger instinct is trying to drive humans to eat. The boredom instinct is trying to drive us to do things. All right, great. Let's understand that instinct. Hmm. Like, how do you actually satisfy that properly? And I'm really fascinated by this question. And I've just started researching. I've talked to some paleoanthropologists. I've been looking at the psychology of boredom. And so this is all very tentative, but I think you're on to something that's probably the right answer. We want to be doing meaningful activity almost all the time. Humans get bored as soon as they sort of lack engagement or activity, right? We want to be doing things that are meaningful all the time. But if we give ourselves, if we put on our plate more things than we can easily imagine getting done, we overload that system. Just like we're hungry and we go eat a bunch of junk, you know, we feel right. terrible. It's not great for us. And so what is the most human pace of action or productivity is probably exactly what you're talking about. You have a huge variety of things you know how to do and can do, but you're only doing a very small number at a time, very sequentially. And you do not have what we've created in modern knowledge work was this, this looming list of Here's 50 things that need to be done because we can't conceptual. That's like more things than we can imagine getting done. It needs to be um, fixing the fence on my farm today. And now I'm done with that. Yes. Hey, I think I'm going to go work on my tractor and tomorrow I'm going to go. You know what I mean? It's like skilled, engaging, meaningful work with variety, but not at any one time. This looming list of all these things need to be done and there's no way you can get them all done in time. That is the cognitive equivalent of eating all the junk food. It is taking a drive we have and subverting it. Yeah. No, that's really good. I can't wait for you to explore that question further. That'd be a fun follow-up conversation. So Cal, I'm curious, sun up, sun down, the moment you wake up, the moment you go to bed, what does a typical day look like for you? Well, there isn't a typical day, 
I time block plan, right? So I make a yep. plan for each day to make the most of the day, but it's very dependent. I'm a very seasonal worker. So yep. I have two jobs, basically, right? I'm a professor and I'm a writer and they're both very seasonal jobs. So if you ask me about that today, well, I'm in the middle of a book tour. So, you know, what does it look like? Well, we can look at today. I was up pretty early because I was doing BBC and that's five hours ahead. So I'm doing a, a radio interview there. But then I had a three hours, which I spent entirely outside because it's very nice out. And I worked, I was reviewing papers for a program committee and I did it outside by a field and had lunch with my wife outside at a restaurant. And then I've been in an interview since, right? But that's very different than what a month from now is going to look like. Yeah. You know, where I'm not teaching, I'm not promoting a book. That's going to be a day where I'm going to be probably largely outside and I'm going to have some sort of CS problem. I'm thinking about a small block of administrative work and some days, but not all, then later in the day, do some writing. And that's probably like the ideal day for me, but it's just depends on what season I'm in. You like to write later in the day. Yeah, I write. Well, yes. So I have various writing times. What I try to do is have set times. I just always write then. Yeah. And so if in the middle of an article, it's obvious what I'm doing. If I'm not, then I'm working. I mean, after I get off this call with you, I'm working on art. I'm reading, but I have a book I'm working on. I'm reading for an article I'm working on. And so a lot of those times, some of those times are in the evening. You know, I do it sort of in the sort of happy hour time. It's just something I'm kind of used to, right? And then some of it's in the morning. I have some mornings I always write, like, okay. Yeah. But it's set times because I want that just to be a background rhythm. If it's a deadline coming or a book, then like a lot more time gets also added to that. But it's, I want to keep a background rhythm of always thinking, always writing. Yeah. So we were exchanging emails. I told you a big part of this podcast is about how the faith of our guests influences their work. And your grandfather, your grandfather was John Newport, right? Yes. Yeah. Baptist preacher, theologian. What impact did he have on you and your faith? I'm really curious. He was a really interesting character. And there's actually a, a biography coming out. So I've, I've read an early copy of it, but Baylor University Press has a biography coming out of him. And it was really interesting to read that recently because it gave you a lot more insight, you know, things I didn't already know. But he was a really interesting guy because he was one of the few Southern Baptist apologists. Right. So mm -hmm. he was really interested in building an intellectually coherent worldview off of evangelical Baptist principles. Mm -hmm. He wanted to engage with the world of ideas. And it was amazing to learn such a brain with the people he would go and see and hang out with. You know, I'm reading this biography and it'll be like, well, you know, he was over in Zurich working on whatever and was hanging out with Carl Jung. You know, and then, you know, he was at the, was studying at so-and-so in New York and was just doing long walks every day with Abraham Heschel, you know, and they were like just people from all sorts of different intellectual backgrounds. He was a huge Paul Tillich fan. He was at Harvard at the same time as Niebuhr. And so he was really interested in engaging the world of ideas, understanding different ideas and trying to understand them through a framework a religious framework that was informed by internal faith and intimation. So through his internal faith and intimations, you have this fundamental framework, but instead of trying to hide it from the world of ideas, he would use it to try to understand the world of ideas. Like, well, okay, Jung has interesting ideas, but we can understand that through this, like an evangelical Christian framework. Heschel, this is really interesting. Let's go back where that comes from. And we can understand that through this framework. And, and that's what he was known for. But he was one of the only people doing that in that particular faith. At the time in the seminaries, there grew up this sort of fear of engagement and we got circled the wagons and et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that ended up happening. And so that was always inspirational. His intellectual openness, I think he found 
revelation in intellectual engagement. And so he created this whole generation of, you know, he had so many PhD students, this whole generation of scholars who took this biblical worldview out in the world and were so energized by saying there's this whole world of ideas out there that can be a source of energy as opposed to like a source of threat. And that's the difference, right? I'm so grateful. I didn't know he was your grandfather until I read the book, but I'm like, of course I know John Newton. Uh, sorry, John Newport. But you know, people like him, people like Keller, Tim Keller in our modern day, people like C.S. Lewis, who did not see ideas as a threat, but as a way to strengthen the very rational Christian explanation of the world. So I love that. I'm curious if you see a connection for you between your faith and the work that you do, either as a writer or as an academic. Is there a link there? I mean, I'm sure all of these things have to be connected. So, I mean, it's a good question, right? Because it's not as if, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's an explicit link, right? So I'm actually thinking about the explicit content. I think you could take the explicit content and you could interpret it through a lot of different mm -hmm. views, yeah. right? Though I don't know if that's intentional or not. But the very notion, I mean, to do any sort of intellectual production, like I want to put an idea out there into the world to try to have an impact on the world, what you're doing in microcosm is a mini expression of a faith, right? I mean, what is like a religious faith if not you have these strong internal intimations, like what Lewis would call the signpost, hmm. and there is this structure delivered typically through scripture about how to make sense and understand and work with this and understand where this comes from and how to harness it and what it's telling you and how to build your life around it. And, you know, scripture is ancient, so it's going it, to, this information is going to be conveyed in terms of combinations of, it's going to be story, it's going to be ritual, it's going to be creed, and all this comes together, and it's like an operating system for these deep human moral intuitions. That's obviously a very powerful operating system, but in a microcosm, at a very small scale, this is what any intellectual endeavor is. I mean, mm. ultimately, I have these sort of intuitions based on what I've seen in the world about what's happening with career satisfaction or the workplace or et cetera. And let me now try to build and understand a, a, a useful operating system around that. Like, how do yeah. we get past, this doesn't feel right that I'm checking my inbox so much. Mm. <laughs> and how yeah, do we get no, past and actually build an operating system around that intimation that sort of explains, like, this is the way the world works. This is why you feel that way. And once you understand that, it gives you some sense about what you should do. And okay, this is the most hubristic thing I've ever done, I guess, is compare my advice on email to <laughs> a world religion, right? So that's why I'm trying to say in mini microcosm, right? <laughs> no, but not, I mean, we, no. no, listen, like we talk a lot about this on the podcast. If you believe the biblical narrative that we were created in God's image as his image bearers, then the work that we do bringing something out of largely nothing is a way of imitating that character, right? So that's what you're doing with ideas. So no, it makes total sense to me. I remember, this must have been a couple of years ago, you blogged about the fact that digital minimalism had been really widely adopted within religious circles. Have you thought any more about why you think that is? Well, and deep work too, for sure. Yeah. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. I didn't oh, know. Yeah. yeah, so deep work got picked up a lot by... Protestant pastors. Hmm. And they thought about it a lot. I like to think I have something to do with that. Probably not, but I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit. You had a big influence <laughs> on that. <laughs> but it's like one of the groups I hear from most consistently. I mean, I hear a lot from professors. <laughs> professors sure. are overwhelmed, but I hear a lot from Protestant pastors. And I mean, you know why, but there's, so I, I hear a lot from Protestant pastors because they recognize the contemplative power of undistracted 
concentration and they feel like they've lost it because they're also running basically what feels like you're running a mid-sized business. You know, yeah. you have all yeah. of these parishioners, you have the budget for the church, everyone needs your attention. And for them, it's often the sermon writing is where this gets clear. Yeah. Like that's the touch point. I hear from various Catholic thinkers, Catholic fathers, and some lay leadership or this or that. The Catholics, it's a little bit different because they're a little bit more, I don't want to say smug about it, but they're like, oh yeah, we've been doing this for 500 years. <laughs> like, like, yeah, we think a lot <laughs> about this. We have these, especially if they're in an order, you know, it's yeah, right, like, right. yeah, like, uh, let me tell you how the Jesuits do this. And we sit down, we have these big rituals and we do the prayers and we set it up aesthetically and the candle is going and we blah, blah, blah. So the Catholics are more like, yeah, welcome to the party. So that's kind of interesting. Oh yeah. And then again, then of course the Jews are like, yeah, come on, this is all we right. do, right? So it's really been interesting hearing from like some of the Jewish Talmudic traditions of concentration, partner-based study of Torah to try to get to deeper levels. There's fascinating mm -hmm. layers, right? So various religious communities. In the Islamic community, I've been hearing more from too. There's a really big tradition in the Islamic community of contemplation and Quran study that's very structured. But I think it's really interesting, right? That the ancient religions have thought about so much the value of contemplation. So we're just like rediscovering at the surface stuff that we've known in our soul for a really long time. I haven't told you this yet, but so I got a book coming out with Random House this October. And part of the case that I make is that part of the reason why digital minimalism and deep work specifically are so prevalent within the Christian community is because you can see it in the life of Christ, right? Like we read the gospels almost exclusively for their theology and for their ethics, which obviously there's a lot of that there, but we rarely if ever look at the way that Jesus walked, right? We forget that God became flesh in Jesus and was time bound, right? He was a human being. But when you look at the gospels, there's these little stories here and there, here and there that show him fully present with whatever the task was. There's this great scene where he's preaching and he's preaching, he's teaching in the synagogue or in someone's house. I can't remember exactly what it was. And one of his disciples comes up and was like, hey, Jesus, your mom and your siblings are outside. And he essentially says, he preaches this mini sermon on who's my brother, who's my mother, whatever. But we missed the fascinating B story there. He ignored them. He said, no, I'm fully focused like on the task at hand. I'm like preaching this sermon. And then like elsewhere through the gospels, he's fully present with his family and fully present with his friends. And in terms of solitude, I mean, digital minimalism is really about solitude. Would you agree with that? Solitude and intention. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like, but, that's yeah. the story of Jesus, right? Like, that's interesting. The, the number of times scripture says he withdrew to lonely places is pretty startling. Hey, one more question. So I've been thinking about this. I think we love to complain about it. I think we love complaining about nonstop email, texts, Slack messages. We hate these things, but we love to hate these things because I think it makes us feel needed and important. I think there's something spiritual going on there. Have you seen that in your research? Yes. I mean, I think that's definitely there. Busyness is a good proxy for productivity hmm. and therefore a proxy for meaning. But I believe we crave that because it's filling a vacuum created by the ambiguity that we've allowed to surround these jobs, right? Hmm. The reason why we crave, let me just do something. We react to Slack real quick. Let me get these emails sent really quick is because it's a bewildering job landscape sometimes, right? I don't really know exactly what my job is. I mean, I know I'm the vice president of, you know, compliance for the HR department, but it's not, it's not a hundred percent clear, you know, I'm not building boats, right? I don't say here's the boat I built this year. 
and it floats pretty well. <laughs> you know, good. <laughs> I know what I'm working on. No, it's like I did a PowerPoint deck in a Zoom meeting. Like I don't quite know, you know, as a human what that means. Mm-hmm. But the answer to that, I think, is get rid of the ambiguity. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get clear about these jobs. We probably need more specialization. We need more clarity. We need more processes. We need more. And I got to say, this is a scary thing. And I'll say why in a second, but we need more. Now, this is what you do for us. Like, this is your skill. We're going to invest in you to hone this craft. And like, this is the main thing you do for us. We've kind of built your work life around it. Here's how it happens. Here's what the information is. And it's like the main thing we have you doing. That's probably what we're wired for. Now, it is scary because one of the benefits of the ambiguity of a hyperactive hive mind shop is that you can kind of just get away with whatever. I'm busy. I answer emails. I do whatever. And it's very scary. They say, no, no, this is what you do. Where's the boat? Does it float? (laughs) And I think that is a scary question for a lot of people, but it's a scary thing we need to face because when you get over that and you learn how to build the boat and it does float, that's a really deep sense of satisfaction. And yeah. and then you're getting that calling sense of, you know, I am putting my skills to use to create something useful in the world. And so it's a scary hurdle to jump, but I think we have to do it. Yeah. You know, we're going to have to trade accountability for autonomy. And I think yeah. that's going to be the fundamental trade. If we really want knowledge work to be a meaningful, satisfying thing, but also grow that part of our economy, we have to have this fundamental trade of accountability for autonomy. You're not going to answer a thousand emails a day. You're not going to have 20 different things to do. You're not going to jump on Zoom all day. You're going to do this and you can do it however you want. You're going to do it well. It's going to be very satisfying, but we're going to hold you accountable. You know, are you actually doing the work? Is it good? And it's a scary transition, but I think it's probably where we need to get. Yeah, I think that's right. So I lied when I said one more question. I forgot. We have three questions we wrap up every conversation with real fast. All right. First, books that you tend to gift most frequently to others or recommend, and they can't be your own books. It's cheating. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, what do I, so I can't answer what I gift most often because I'm a real matcher, you know? Okay, so yeah, for totally. you, uh, yeah, there you, you know, go. This, yeah. this is the book, but no, okay, let me think of this for a second. When it comes to books, like what is it that I talk, you know, a book I talk up a lot that, that a lot of people haven't heard of. I'm a big Lincolnophile. I like Abraham, mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln for a lot of reasons is very inspiring to me. So I talk up, there's this little known book called Lincoln's Virtues. It's an ethical hmm. biography. So hmm. trying to understand how his ethical positions developed. Another book I, I've been talking up a lot, I should be more well known. It was at the time, but Karen Armstrong wrote this book called The Case for God. Hmm. And it's, it, I mean, it's written from a non-sectarian standpoint, but it's an incredibly insightful, I think, take on religion. It's in part a very sophisticated rebuke of the new atheist, which is interesting especially since it's coming from a non-sectarian place. But it also, I find it fascinating because the idea it has that is really stuck with me is the way that the Enlightenment kind of messed up our understanding of religion. (laughs) That a lot of this was developed in a world before we had the sort of Enlightenment principles of, you know, empiricism or this or that. And it really gets into how a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding or critiques people have of religion actually comes from applying an Enlightenment frame to something that is pre-Enlightenment. And trying to understand something like scripture through the lens of your assenting to empirically validatable truths and where's the data. And it, this book talks about that notion is nonsense when you go before like 1500, right? It also goes deep into the ineffability of religion and how we sort of forget the degree to which through ritual, through creed, through story that we're trying to actually connect to something that's ineffable. So literally the human brain can't 
comprehend it in its fullness. Our brain can't handle it. And so we have all these brilliant ways of trying to just gain insight into something that we can't fully understand and how all of that just falls away when you have a very simplistic sort of post-enlightenment type analysis of like, okay, what are the empirical observations that you're assenting true? So anyways, that book I think is really, really smart. So that's one, it's another sneaky one that I recommend a lot. All right, last question. One piece of advice to leave this audience with, you have so much to give about career and work, but it's an audience of people who want to do great work because they believe it's a means of glorifying God and serving other people. What one thing do you want to leave them with? Well, the primary piece of advice I guides all this is what goes back to that first career book from 2012, which was this notion that be so good they can't ignore you. And if you do that, all the other good things will come. Yeah. And to be so good they can't ignore you requires a sort of diligence, which means not just the returning to something of value, but the saying no to the other things that are of lesser value, but would take your time from it. So this willingness to stick with and hone a craft that's useful and apply it. That idea has been foundational to almost everything I've done and everything I've thought about the world of work. Mm. I love it so much. Cal, I want to commend you just for the exceptional work you do in the world, helping us think through these topics. Thank you for serving your readers, our shared publisher, everybody well through the work you do. And thank you for helping us be more purposeful and present and productive like Jesus. Hey, guys, the new book is A World Without email. It's terrific. I read it cover to cover like I do everything Cal writes. And of course, you can always find Cal at calnewport.com. Cal, thanks for being here. Well, thanks, Jordan. I enjoyed it. In the words of my friend John Mark Comer in an email to me recently, Cal Newport is a gem. I could not have said it better myself, John Mark. Man, that was a fun conversation. Hey, If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to The Call to Mastery so you never miss an episode with one of our terrific guests in the future. And if you're already subscribed, do me a favor. Take 30 seconds, go rate the podcast so more people can find it. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to The Call to Mastery. I'll see you next week.